Tonight we're going to close out Jude. Uh, we've been in 1 John, and then we got to 2 John and 3, and now we're in Jude. Uh, and just to review so far, the book of Jude is very short, but very powerful. Uh, Jude begins the letter by saying, I wanted to write about the love of God. But, unfortunately, the situation called for something uh, a lot more uh, negative, less pleasant, and that was a strong warning against false teachers. Jude saw to his great disturbance how much false teaching was spreading through the churches, and he wanted to give a warning uh, against this. Uh, last week, we saw some ways to spot false teachers in our midst. And if you weren't here, I, I say last week, two weeks ago, if you weren't here or if you just need to brush up on it, it is on the website, so I recommend you look at it. Um, but today, as, as he closes his letter, he closes with some things we need to do. So years ago at my previous church, we, we, the sanctuary was under some construction and it came to Easter Sunday, and we still weren't done. So we had to scramble to figure out where we were going to meet, because we'd been meeting in the gym all that time, and we thought, well, that's not going to work for Easter. And so we borrowed or rented, I think we did have to pay, uh, to rent a local, the, the auditorium at a local middle school that seated quite a few. So we had Easter service at this middle school, and uh, there were people from the community that came to that that wouldn't have come to a church. Now, I preached, as I always do on Easter, as everybody should, on the resurrection. And I remember exactly what my sermon was about. It was about, I said, you know, we're always concerned at this time of year to prove to the world that Jesus really did rise again. And I said, that's great, but I think a lot of them would say, so what? We should be showing the world what difference the resurrection makes in us. I remember that that was my sermon. And I felt like I did a really good job, and I, I went to the back of the of the auditorium and I was shaking hands as everyone was leaving. And there was a woman who I'd never seen before, must have been a, a person from the community that was just drawn in. And she said, okay, now what? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, that was, that was a fine sermon, but now what am I supposed to do with that? Well, you talk about deflating my balloon. <laughs> and she had a good point. You can preach the truth and, and the truth is scripture. But the job of preaching is to tell people what now, now what? We as God's people, when we read the Word of God, we always need to ask the Lord to show us, oh Holy Spirit, now what? And oftentimes the, the Scriptures themselves tell us the next steps to take, and that's certainly the case with Jude. Jude, like any good preacher, makes sure he tells us the now what at the end of his letter. So we begin with verse 17. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So in that section that we just read, there's one little short section before we get to the end, but in that section I see five instructions, five now what's you might say. And the first two have to do with uh, getting ourselves ready. 
so that we will not be led astray by false teachers in our midst. So the, the first of those two is basically remember the warnings. Remember what the scriptures say. He says, in his words, remember the predictions of the apostles. Um, if you pay attention, when you read the New Testament, and I hope you do that at least once a year, every book of the New Testament has some warning against false teaching. Now that should tell you something. This was not an isolated problem. If, if you're a Bible student, you know that different churches in the New Testament had different issues and certain things are mentioned in Corinthians that aren't mentioned in Galatians or Philippians or Colossians because they were unique to that particular church's situation. But when you see it in every book of the New Testament, that tells you it wasn't a localized issue. It wasn't just in Israel. It wasn't just in Asia Minor. It wasn't just in Greece. It wasn't just in Rome. It was everywhere. And it also tells you that this is something we're always going to have to deal with. Because the devil, as I've said before, the devil is a lot of things, but he's not original. He doesn't come up with a lot of new ideas. He keeps recycling the same old things. And unfortunately, they keep working. And one of them, one of them is, is false teaching. I want to point out when it says, uh, in the last times in, in verse 18, because some people will look at that and say, well, wait a second, are we in the last days? This was written 2000 years ago. There are those who will tell you that Jude and the other apostles believed that the Lord was returning in their own lifetime. And they'll point that out as, as if to say, see, these guys didn't know everything. And I say, not necessarily. I, I don't think that's necessarily what Jude is saying. Most scholars I read think that when he talks about the last time, here's what he's talking about. It's the last era of human history. Now, here's what I mean. From God's perspective, human history is not necessarily measured by years or centuries. It's, it's covenants. It's uh, God revealing himself to Adam and then God revealing himself to Noah and then to Abraham and then to David and then finally to Jesus. It's God saying, here's how you get to me. Well, the last of all the covenants is Jesus. There's nothing more that God is going to do to redeem humans. He's already done it all. We are in the last stage, meaning there's not going to be any new revelation from God. If you ever see anybody say, well, here's the, here's the latest book of the Bible that's just been written, you can just turn that off because it's not true. There, there's never going to be an addition to the Word of God. There's never going to be a new way to get to salvation. It's already been done in the cross and the empty tomb. And so uh, nothing from God in terms of salvation is going to happen. Nothing new until the day he returns. And that's, I believe, what James is talking about. Or I'm sorry, Jude is talking about. But they do have a point in that Jude didn't know when Jesus would come back. I can tell you that. I, you know how I know that? Because Jesus himself said, even I don't know. Now, don't ask me to explain that since he was, he was God in human flesh. Did he cause himself to forget? I don't understand that, but that's what Jesus said. If Jesus himself didn't know when the return was going to be, then I guarantee you none of his apostles did, not even his brother, Jude. So Jude didn't know when Christ was coming back, but neither does the devil. The devil doesn't know when Christ is returning. So from what I can tell, his philosophy is, I'm going to work every day as if it's my last. So shouldn't we... That's the question we ought to ask. If, if our enemy is working with that kind of urgency, shouldn't we? Remember those warnings. 
The second thing he tells us is you need to grow in spiritual maturity. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off on a tangent for a second, but I have a point. One of the things you'll notice today, this is completely non-spiritual, but it has a point. Trust me, just stick with me. There's all these ways you can get in shape without changing what you eat and without exercising. Have you, have you seen these? Do, does it, do any of them really work? See, one of the things I've come to believe, and I'm no nutritionist and I'm no personal trainer, but I think the human body's never really varied from this, that uh, you're healthy if you put good stuff in and if you burn more calories than you consume. It all comes down to that. So no matter what fad diet you participate in, you can say, well, I'm just, I'm saying no more meat, or I'm saying no more sugar, or I'm saying no more flour, or whatever the case may be. Well, it all boils down to, are you, are you burning more than you're putting in? Are you putting in things that are actually good for you? It, no matter how you slice it, it still comes down to that. Okay, here's my point. As Christians, I see a lot of us running around trying to figure out how to make this one area of our lives better. I just need, I just need a better marriage. I just need how to, to learn how to raise uh, godly kids. I, I just need to uh, know how to make impact society for good. I, I just know how to be happier. And all those are fine. All those are good goals. But the one non-negotiable is still growing in Christ. You're not going to get a healthier marriage no matter what books you read or classes you go to. You're not going to become a better parent. You're not going to become a, a more effective witness to the world and impact society. You're not going to be happier if you bypass discipleship as a Christian. It starts there. And again, again, I'm not speaking against specific ministries. Again, we have re-engaged going on right now and ministering to uh, couples who want to improve their marriages. But I guarantee you, they're growing in Christ in re-engage or it's not going to work for them. You see, it all begins with discipleship. And so, so it is with false teaching. If we think that uh, we can become better at spotting false teaching by reading books about the cults or about false teachers or about uh, spiritual deception, there's a place for that kind of study, but you don't have to do that. The main thing you have to do, the one non-negotiable is grow in your spiritual maturity. Because one of the things I've learned is counterfeit things don't seem enticing once you've had the real thing. You ever, you ever met somebody who says, um, hey, uh, let's go get a steak at this uh, place that sells them for $5. And you think, well, come over to my house. I'll give you a real steak, right? You haven't tasted the real thing yet. If you think that's good, let me show you what the real thing tastes like. And that's true of our faith in God and, and spotting false teaching. Verse 20, he says, building yourself up in your most holy faith. So he talks about three ways to grow. First of all, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's talking about what I believe we would call spiritual disciplines. Studying and meditating on scripture, worshiping weekly with the body of Christ, uh, fasting, giving, serving, all those things we do to build up our own faith. And then he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. That's something that's mentioned frequently in the New Testament, but it's not often talked about. We just hear praying and we think, oh, well, I just need to sit down and tell the Lord what's on my heart. And yes, you do, but that's not praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit is when you move from just asking for the things you want 
to moving to asking for the things God wants to accomplish in your life and in the world. That's praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is when you say, Lord, I know this is something you're working on, and I want to pray alongside you for that. And you might say, well, why would I pray for that if God's already working for it? Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is God giving us the opportunity to work alongside Him to make positive change in the world, to be a part of His work of redemption. And that's when your prayer life becomes powerful, when you learn to pray in the Holy Spirit. It's the difference between being a little kid who asks his mom and dad for candy, even though nine times out of ten they say no because it's going to spoil your dinner, right? And becoming a young man or woman who asks your mom and dad for advice on how to do things who asks your mom and dad for resources uh, to help you do what you've been put on earth to do. As a mom or a dad, you definitely grant those requests. The requests for candy and toys, well, maybe. You see, it's, it's learning to pray in the Spirit for the things God wants to give you and wants to do in the world around you. And then the third thing he mentions is waiting for the mercy of our Lord. And that's talking about the return of Christ. It's talking about the spiritual discipline of anticipating the second coming. You may never have thought of that, have thought of that as a spiritual discipline, but it is. When we anticipate, when we long for, when we pray for Christ's return, that has a positive benefit in our spiritual lives. That, that blesses our souls. So let me ask you this before we move on to the next point. Which of these things are you doing on a regular basis? Are you building up your faith daily, intentionally? Are you praying in the Holy Spirit, not just asking God for things, but asking what is God doing in my life and in the world around me and how can I participate with Him? And are you, are you waiting for the mercy of our Lord? Are you praying like the, like the ancient Christians did? Come, Lord Jesus, come today. Which of these things did you do today? It's a good question to ask. We have to build ourselves up. We have to grow in spiritual maturity so what is false doesn't look attractive to us. Now the next, there's three more on the list. These are all about kinds of interventions we should do for other people. The first two were things we should do for ourselves. These are ways we can rescue others. And the first, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. It takes patience in many cases to help people overcome false teaching. When you know someone who has fallen under the sway of a false teacher, you have to be patient with them. The truth is, oftentimes when you try to come to them and say, hey, stop listening to that, that's not true, they've already bought in. So they might not want to hear from you. you have, it takes patience to win them over. Pray for them, you reason for them. Treat them with grace, treat them with mercy. Uh, that doesn't mean we get angry with them or we cast them out. I, this is not exactly a one-to-one -one comparison, but I, I think about Eugene Peterson telling the story of, and he was a pastor of a Presbyterian church, and a woman started coming to his church. And he met with her to find out what her story was, found out she was living with someone she wasn't married to. Uh, she didn't think there was anything wrong with that. She had some other areas of her life that were very out of step with biblical morality. And he made a decision right then. He said, this, this woman, just from talking to her, it's obvious she doesn't really know the Lord. So I'm not going to start off by talking about her moral choices. I'm going to say, you visit our church. You come as, as long as you want, as often as you want. You're welcome here. Learn about Christ. Ask as many questions as you want. 
And over time, that woman, her heart toward the Lord started to soften. She began to see that she wasn't really saved. And she gave her heart to Christ. And then she was ready to hear about her lifestyle. She was ready to know uh, what changes she needed to make in order to be obedient to Christ. Uh, Again, that's not the same as rescuing someone from false teaching, but there's correlations there. It takes patience. You got to pray. You got to reason with people. You have to help them see the beauty of the true gospel that maybe they've never seen before or they've somehow forgotten. And then, then you can come in and speak directly. But on the other hand, there are times when more urgent action is necessary. And that's the, the fourth thing he mentions. He says, Ur- urgently rescue those about to fall. That's my words. His words are snatching them out of the fire. That's a really vivid image, isn't it? Snatching somebody out of the fire. Um, I, I read a story once told by another pastor about, uh, he heard about a man in his church. Actually, this man's wife called him and said, he's leaving me. He's flying out on an airplane to go be with this woman that he's fallen in love with at a distance. He's going to go, you know, he's, they've been having this long distance relationship behind my back. He's, he's flying out to, to just go to her and, I don't know what to do. And this pastor just felt led to go to the airport. And he called some other men in the church who knew him and they all showed up and they almost physically kidnapped him from the airport. They, they basically stood between him and the exit gate and said, we're not letting you get on that plane. And eventually he relented. Um, and that, their marriage was over time rescued. Uh, again, not a one-to-one comparison, but sometimes it does take urgent action. I think about the people I've read about uh, who've been absorbed into these cults and, and people who come along and do these interventions where they, they grab them and, you know, hey, get in the car right now. And they take them somewhere and they, they work with them for days, deprogramming their minds that have been brainwashed with this garbage. Sometimes urgent action is needed and it takes wisdom on our part to know when that kind of urgent action is needed and how to initiate it. I can't tell you when that's needed. You have to pray for wisdom to know this person's about to go past the point of no return. We may never see them again unless we intervene in some way, unless me and a bunch of us from the church just gather around them and and try to talk some sense into them. And then the last category he mentions is, have mercy mixed with fear. And this is a case where we need to recognize our own vulnerability. He says, uh, we need to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. That's an image of taking care of someone with an infectious disease. And even in those times when they didn't know anything about microbes, they knew if, when you take those clothes off a sick person, you don't, you don't put them next to you. You, don't, you, don't, uh, you throw them out. You burn them. You take, you take precautions. Otherwise, you yourself could get sick. Sin is in many ways an infectious disease. And when you spend time around it, you can yourself become infected. Not by by osmosis, like with with, uh, bacteria, but you can get drawn in. I think it's important for us to be humble and wise. And when we're working with someone and we realize they're influencing me more than I'm influencing them, or when we realize they're struggling with a temptation that I myself struggle with, there comes a time when wisdom says, this person is no longer my responsibility. 
Someone else is going to have to come minister to them, not me. And, and, and we need to recognize that fact. We need humility to admit this is beyond my powers. This is beyond my maturity. This needs someone else. Now, Jude ends his book with a doxology. Remember what a doxology is. A doxology is, uh, doxa is the Greek word for glory. And ology uh, is the study of or the words of. And so a doxology is when you simply praise God. There, there are these found all throughout the scriptures. And this is the way Jude ends his book. And the reason he ends it this way, I think, is after such a dark and heavy subject about the prevalence of false teaching in the church and the warnings and the damage it can do, he wants to remind us that God's still on the throne. That in the end... God's going to win no matter what. So he writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to pre present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So just two things about that. Two things he praises the Lord for on the way out. And the first is, that he is able to bring us home blameless. See, the good news is that any redeemed child of God, the devil can't touch them. Can we be deceived? Absolutely. Can we wander? Can we stray? Can we backslide? Yes, and it's tragic. But in the end, the enemy doesn't win. Our sins will be washed away and replaced with his righteousness. And there's nothing the devil can do about that. Once you belong to Jesus, you're his. Right now, we can be a part of that process of, of growing in sanctification and, and through encouragement, we can be a part of that process in the lives of others. And, and the exciting thing is that when you serve the Lord in encouraging others to grow in faith, you know you're on the winning side. You are working in a ministry, in, a, in, a, in an industry, you might say, that will never die. I... I one of my friends at my previous church uh, experienced a double whammy once. Uh, this was back in 2008. Remember the downturn of 2008? Some of you do. Uh, not only did he lose all of his retirement, and he was about the age I am now, so he was in his mid-50s, uh, so probably about 10 years or so from when he wanted to retire, and all of a sudden he saw, you know, because of the crash of the stock market, all of his retirement went away. And at the very same time that was happening, the industry that he'd been in since he graduated from college just dried up. Just like that. Suddenly, what he'd been trained to do, what he'd been doing his whole life, there were no jobs in that. There was no money to be made in that. And I just felt so awful for him. I have, in a way, I have job security because there's always going to be sinners, right? People are always going to need the gospel. But some, some industries aren't like that. It's a very fragile place to be. But when you are, when, when your main vocation is seeing people come to Christ and seeing Christians grow in their faith, that's an industry that will always be needed until the day Christ returns. So whatever else you devote your life to, devote your life to that most of all. He is able to bring us home blameless. Isn't that good news? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And I love the fact that people... <laughs> People love to speculate about, oh, am I going to be able to play golf in heaven or you know, shoot a deer or whatever the case may be? And I've got my opinions on that. 
but I don't think that's going to matter nearly as much as number one, seeing Jesus and being in his presence. And number two, knowing that our sin nature is gone. I think we underrate how great it's going to be to know I never ever again have to feel shame or guilt. I never ever have to look at that person and realize I've really hurt her feelings. I've really done a bad thing. When that's all gone and and we get to walk in complete righteousness, I don't think we have any concept yet of how wonderful that's going to be. He is able to give us that and He will. And then the second thing He praises God for is the fact that He's the only God. He is the only one. He is our Savior. And, and I think that's important for him to note going out on the, at the end of the letter because he's been talking about these false teachers. And Jude would say, they're talking about a completely different God. They're not talking about our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not talking about Jesus Christ, our Savior. They're talking about, they may use the same terms, but talking about a completely different God. And he says, the good news is they're not talking about a God who's real and we are. Our God is real. And in the end, that will be displayed. And I I just want to say this. I I wrote this down because I I just want to, I don't want to be controversial, but I want to confront some of the false teaching of our time. When we get to heaven, we will see the one true God and we will see Jesus face to face. And we'll find out he is not the weak and compliant God of prosperity preachers who claim that you can get anything out of God you want. He's not the permissive God of theological liberalism who says, well, if my laws aren't convenient for you, just disregard them. He's not the cold, angry God of legalists who, who demands strict adherence to everything or else you're out. He's not the corrupt God of powerful preachers who excuse their own moral failings by saying, yeah, but I'm the pastor. He's a God who hates evil so much, he has to destroy it. And he's a God who loves people so much, he'll die in their place. In other words, he's the God of the cross. And there is no other. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. And this book of your Bible is not the happiest or the most pleasant, but it's so necessary. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that the, the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That the enemy loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. And I pray that we would be wise people who love your word, who know your word, who love you enough and who love your church enough that we stand on guard, that we earnestly contend for the faith that was given to us by the apostles. I pray that this would be a church where the truth is always preached and that we would be people who speak the truth in love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.